morning, Mayus Road Church. Uh, after being at Grace Life Church in Hastings last Sunday, it's, it's so good to be back here and home um, on this Lord's Day, and I'm excited to be bringing God's word to you this morning. The, the influential uh, atheist writer, Christopher Hitchens, uh, he once said in a debate with a Christian, he said, if you want to be awe-inspired, ladies and gentlemen, let me just say, those of us who do not believe we're divinely created, let alone divinely supervised, we are not immune to the idea of awe and beauty and the transcendent. He said, let me invite you to look for a moment at the pictures taken by the Hubble telescope. The extraordinary revelations of swirling, yet somehow beautiful new galaxies in color and depth and majesty like nothing the human eye has ever seen. He said, turn away from that glory if you wish and gaze at a burning bush in an illiterate illiterate part of the Middle East and say that that is where beauty comes from. He says, I don't think you'd be able to do it. Later on in the the same debate, he said, going over the lip of the event horizon in a black hole would be majesty. That would be magnificence. That would be awe-inspiring. That would be apocalyptic. He said, so it's in the natural world. It's in the world of science and the world of innovation and discovery and doubt. We wouldn't have discovered any of these beautiful things if we'd taken the religious story as true. For, For a man so captivated by the beauty of the heavens. It's quite sad that, that Christopher Hitchens could, could ascribe no glory to the creator. Even more than that, it's sad that he could see no goodness in God. Maybe you're here this morning and you are skeptical and unbelieving like Christopher Hitchens was. Or maybe you go through your days mindful of the beauty and majesty of nature Maybe you enjoy watching planet Earth, but you are not mindful of the Creator. Or perhaps more likely for those of you here this morning, you you believe in God, you've grown up in the church, but you think of Him as distant and disconnected from your day-to-day experience. Or maybe you find yourself feeling apathetic or confused about your purpose in life as a Christian, and you need to be reminded of it. Or simply you just lack delight in God and you don't know where to turn to find it. If that's you this morning, then our text has something to say to you. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Psalm chapter 8 and we will be spending our morning there. And if you are able out of reverence and esteem for God's holy and authoritative and beautiful word, I would invite you to join me in standing as we read it together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. God in heaven, would you please bless the, the preaching of your word? We ask, Lord, that your glory and your goodness and your grace would be on display to us this morning through your word. We ask that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be fresh and sweet to us this morning. And we ask that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts and our lives. God, would you make it lived out in each one of us here? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you may be seated. As C.S. Lewis once reminded us, the Psalms are poems, and poems are intended to be sung. This is especially true of Psalm 8. It is an unrivaled hymn that revels in the majesty of God. And King David here He wants to stir up our atrophied affection for and our admiration of God. And Psalm 8 shows us that God reveals his majestic glory, goodness, and grace to secure our awe-inspired praise. And I want to break that down this morning and consider each of those things in part. First, God's glory in creation then his goodness specifically to man, and lastly, his grace to us in Christ. And it's my hope that in doing so, you might leave here this morning more mindful of the unmatched majesty of God's name in the earth and beyond. So to begin with, let us consider God's glory in creation. The psalm begins and ends with this powerful refrain, O Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice the the psalm is not addressed to just a, a generic God among the gods. This is our God who has made covenant with us. And though we claim this God is our sovereign master and Lord, the God that we long to obey and praise, this is also the king of all creation. His glory is revealed in all that he has made. And this is true for those who acknowledge it and even for those who don't acknowledge it. His name is majestic in all the earth. Majestic. This is not a a common word used in the Bible, but it describes something that is, is wide and great and high and powerful and noble. It is a word that conveys that his name is everywhere and it is above everything. There's nothing more glorious, more perfect, more infinite, more bountiful, more beautiful than the character and the works and the perfections and the name of our Lord, the Lord of all creation. And yet as we consider God's name in all the earth, John Calvin reminds us that that the earth, when we consider all of that, the earth is too small to contain the glory or the wonderful manifestations of the character and perfections of God. And so where does, where does David take our minds in this psalm? He takes our minds to the heavens. In verse 3 he says, When I look at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. This is, this is the context of King David's thoughts here. Have you ever been up in the mountains on a, on a clear night and looked up at the sky? Have you seen the Big Dipper and Saturn and Jupiter? Have you beheld the, the beauty of a shooting star as it zips across the sky? Have you marveled at the majesty of the Milky Way and all its glory? Or have you ever considered God's promise to, to Abraham about the number of his offspring when you've looked out at the vast number of stars in the universe? Perhaps David had this in the back of his mind as he wrote Psalm 8. Have you acknowledged with Job that it's God who alone stretched out the heavens, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Have you considered all these things before? Have you tried to, to wrap your mind around that type of beauty and majesty? Matthew Henry says of of these heavens, he says, he made them. He made them easily. It was easy, simple. He made them with a, a simple swish of his finger like an artist. It's just incredible to ponder. And King David tells us that the glory of God rises higher. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. If you find yourself struggling to, to feel connected to God, or if you find your delight in God dwindling. Do you know that, that he made the heavens so that you might know his glory and his majesty? Your awe at the night sky is just weight training in beholding glory for the, for the purpose that you can actually behold the weight of God's glory. And Psalm 8 reminds us that the skies testify, they tell of his glory. So we see that, that God's glory is in the, the very highest of places, and yet the, the highest and the, the mightiest of men often do not acknowledge God as the fountain and the source and the creator of all this glory and wonder. But they are without excuse. It, it reminds me of the quote from, from G.K. Chesterton where he says, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. And so we'd rather explain these things with appeals to, to aliens and evolution and big bangs and eternal matter. And I've even heard crystals on the, the backs of monkeys than to give glory to God. So who is it, according to, to Psalm 8, that actually confounds the, the Richard Dawkinses and the, the Joe Rogans and the Christopher Hitchenses of the world? It's not the, it's not the smartest and the brightest and the most powerful, though God can and does use those people as well. Psalm 8 reveals that it is the weakest and the simplest and most humble. Verse 2 says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and avenger. In the New Testament, Jesus quotes this same passage saying, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. There's no, there's no stopping God from receiving glory from what he has made. And though the, the haughty and the, the insolent and the 
worldly wise despisers of God may refuse to give him glory. God orders praise to come forth from the mouths of babies and infants. And this, that is sufficient for him to rout and still his enemies. Just as J.R.R. Tolkien's the, The Dark Lord, Sauron, unfortunately for himself, overlooked the humble hobbits in his war for the ring. So the devil, to his demise, has overlooked what he has deemed as simple and weak and foolish. And yet, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Do you ever feel intimidated by the wisdom of the world? Or maybe you sit in class like I did once, worried that you will be shamed for believing the things that you believe? If that's you, then then fear not, because Psalm 8 reminds us that God's glory cannot be suppressed and it cannot be contained. Psalm 8 shows us that the, the pride of man is mocked by the mouths of little children. We see that God's glory is in the highest places and it's also in the very lowest places and it's everywhere in between. And King David wants us to be stirred up with this reality so that we would see God's majesty in everything and turn to him at all times in awe-inspired praise. But this isn't even the, the greatest reason for praise that Psalm 8 reveals. As majestic as God's glory is in all of creation, God reveals even more of his majesty in his goodness that he has shown to man. God's goodness. At the, the very heart of this psalm is the question, what is man? More specifically, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? If you look closely at Psalm 8, you'll notice that it is in a, in a chiasm. A, a chiasm is a literary device where a series of ideas is presented building up to a certain central point and then this series of ideas is repeated again in reverse order. The center of the chiasm is the main point that the author wants to emphasize. The pattern here in, in Psalm 8 is, is A, B, C, C, B, A. It, it begins and it ends with the majesty of God's name in verses 1 and 9. Then as we, we move towards the center, we consider God's glory above the heavens. Down below in verses 5 through 8, man's glory above the earth. And finally then, right in the middle, the psalm crescendos in verses three and four with the insignificance of man compared to the vastness of God's creation and then the significance of man when we see how he cares for us, how he considers us. King David shows us that God's glory is so clearly revealed in all that he has made and God's goodness is so tangibly felt and known in how he has compassionately cared for us. Calvin says again, how is it that God comes forth from so noble and glorious a part of his works and stoops down to us, poor worms of the earth, if it is not to magnify and give a more illustrious manifestation of his goodness? Do you think that the Lord is is distant from you and your current circumstances? 
Do you think that, that he's preoccupied with, with managing the universe and doesn't have time for you and your concerns? Psalm 8 reveals God's goodness to us by reminding us that though he's transcendent and above all things, he's also and simultaneously imminent and very near to us. He's not forgotten you or given you a meaningless existence. He, he cares for you. You can trust him. You can cast your cares on him. You can know that he is good. And according to, to Psalm 8, what are these ways in which he has cared for and been good to man? First of all, God has dignified man to the very highest place in all of creation. One commentator says, God has made him the crown and the captain of creation. Verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We see that while man has been made less than divine and lower than the angels, he's not been made without glory and honor. He has dignity. Of all of, of God's glorious creation, only Man is made in the image and likeness of God. And he's made us to to resemble him and to represent him and to relate with him. This is a a magnificent honor. We resemble him in our relational capacities and our creativity and our morality. We we represent him as his vice regents on earth and we relate to God and we relate to, to one another to display his love and his glory in the world. Secondly, God has given man dominion over the earth. Verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This language here in Psalm 8 is reminiscent of Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. In Genesis, we call this the the creation mandate or the the dominion mandate. Dominion here is is not a passive activity. It's not something that that happens on a lazy boy chair with a remote in one hand and potato chips in the other. Dominion happens when, when people take action in this world for the glory of God. When they act as God's stewards of the earth when they order their homes and their lives and their businesses and their education and their health for God's glory. Do you live with that kind of purpose in your life? To see, to see God's rule extended into your little corner of the world? Or is it your desire to see God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If it's not, then perhaps you need to, to ask yourself why, why that is. God desires that humans take dominion of the earth in his place as his dignified image bearers. However, if you've seen the, the animated movie WALL-E, which uh, my family and I just watched a few weeks ago, then you know what this idea of dominion looks like when it goes south, or more accurately, when it's altogether abandoned. Rather than, than man ruling over nature, the movie depicts nature ruling over man with with robots and screens and slushies, diminishing man's rule and role in the world. If you haven't seen Wally yet, it's a a good movie, you should. It might be one of Pixar's best. Though obviously the the film is 
fictional. It's an illustration and a, a poignant reminder that we live in a Genesis 3 world where sin has distorted it's, and sin has corrupted God's good intentions for us. Furthermore, we live in a world where many people do not give glory to God, nor do they understand his goodness, and nor do they obey him as their Lord. Romans 1 reminds us, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Without, without praise and gratitude towards God, we cannot live rightly in God's world as his image bearers. As one commentator points out, doxology or, or praise, it gives dominion its context and legitimacy. God intended for humans to have such power and authority, but without praise to God, humans only pervert and abuse that power. Friends, notice that, that God shows you his goodness by caring for you and by setting you apart among the entire creation as his image bearers so that you need not ever feel insignificant or worthless. He shows you his, his goodness by calling you to, to take dominion of what you're responsible for, for his glory. So you need not be confused about what your purpose is in life. He shows you his goodness by revealing to you that you were made to worship and delight in him and that you need not be unsatisfied by other things. Yet we recognize and we know that our failure to praise and delight in God as we were made to, and our failure to take dominion of the earth as God intended, reveals to us that the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8 is not something found in us. And the ultimate way in which God has been mindful of us, and the ultimate way in which he has cared for us, considered us, is in sending his son to the earth as a man so that we might be saved by him. So lastly, we will look at God's grace. God's grace in Christ. Though Psalm 8 is not properly considered a, a messianic psalm, this psalm clearly points us beyond ourselves to our Savior. As we consider this psalm, we should take note of how the New Testament authors viewed these verses. As one scholar points out, four different verses of Psalm 8 are quoted seven times in four separate New Testament books by three different New Testament authors. And he says every single time it is interpreted as referring to Jesus. He says that, that we should learn to read the Psalms like an apostle and we should agree. Perhaps the, the most direct application of Psalm 8 to Jesus is found in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9, which says, it has, it has been testified somewhere. What is, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside 
his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, the the son of God, was made a son of man to redeem man from the curse of sin so that man could be renewed and restored after the image and likeness of the creator. Psalm 8 speaks of of God putting all things under man's feet. But we know that this was not possible in our own power and strength and will. As a matter of fact, not not even Adam in his state of integrity before sin, not even he could complete such a task. We needed a a perfect man, the son of man to come and redeem and restore and renew us. And only through the life and death and resurrection and reign of this perfect man can we experience the grace to live rightly in this world. To quote Calvin one final time, he says, Christ, it is true, is the lawful heir of heaven and earth by whom the faithful recover what they lost in Adam but he has not yet actually entered upon the full possession of his empire and dominion. Once the apostle concludes that what is here said by David will not be perfectly accomplished until death be abolished. And when will that happen? Well, if you remember Pastor Ryan's sermon a few weeks ago on Psalm 110, we know that that Christ is already raised and that he is already ruling and reigning at God's right hand, don't we? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28, for for he, for Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You can see the the language of Psalm 8 verse 6 is repeated here. Paul is indicating to us that Psalm 8 is progressively being fulfilled right now. The glory and goodness and grace of God in Psalm 8 is the truth that those who trust in the Lord will not only be saved from their sins, but they will also share in his dominion as they reign with Christ in the new creation. Under the kingship of Christ, what was lost in Adam will be recovered in the new Adam. What was tarnished by sin will be redeemed by grace. And as people bend the knee to Christ, their their high calling as humans, and their their significant place in the creation will take on a new dimension as those who are now being sanctified through this son. The the glory of creation, the the beauty and the, the majesty of the heavens, the goodness of God manifested in his mindfulness and care towards you as a human. The purpose that he has given you to take dominion of the earth and the grace that he has showed you in Christ. All these things, all of them beckon you to turn to him in awe-inspired praise. Will your response be one of cold indifference and pride? Or will you say with King David and all the saints, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic 
is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all our praise. Lord, when we look at all that your hands have made, we are, we're amazed that you are mindful of us, that you show care for us, that you would come to us and save us. Lord, would you make our hearts be filled with, with gratitude for your abundant glory and goodness and grace that you pour out on us so lavishly. Lord, who, who are we? We don't, we don't even know how to answer that question. God, I pray that, that you would renew in us a, a desire to make your glory known to those around us. I pray that you would help us take dominion of the things that you've placed in our responsibility. Would you help us to do that now as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Lord, with all of creation, we give you praise. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.